0: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of Song Chronicles. Our special guest today is a Songwriter Hall of Fame member, Billy Steinberg, who with collaborator Tom Kelly wrote many number one hits, including Like a Virgin by Madonna, True Colors by Cyndi Lauper, Eternal Flame by The Bangles. So Emotional by Whitney Houston, Alone by Heart. The duo also co-wrote I Touch Myself with Christine Amphlett and Mark McEntee of the Divinals. And I'll Stand By You with Chrissy Hind. In this interview, you'll hear Billy's thoughts about the difference between Universal and General, and how he and Tom Kelly found their groove as co-writers, how growing tomatoes keeps him grounded, and what it meant to hear his song, Like a Virgin, sung by an actual nun. Billy's gone on to write with many other writers, including frequent collaborator Josh Alexander, with whom he co-wrote, Give Your Heart a Break, Demi Lovato, and Too Little, Too Late by JoJo. Please enjoy my conversation with Billy Steinberg.
1: Hi, Louise.
0: Thank you so much for doing it.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: One of the things I wanted to ask you, I want to like go back to when you were signed to Planet Records as Billy Thermal, and you make this record, and then without you trying, your song is heard, and all of a sudden you're on the charts and everything's exploding. Like, What was going through your mind when that was happening?
1: I was working in the Coachella Valley in my father's farming business. Mm-hmm. And I had a band, as you know, Billy Thermal, and we were signed to Planet Records and we were playing clubs in Los Angeles like the Blah Blah Cafe and Madame Wong's and mm-hmm. the Troubadour and places like that. And the guitar player in my band, his girlfriend was someone I think you probably know, Wendy Waldman. Mm-hmm. And Wendy, besides being a recording artist, sang backup for Linda Ronstadt. And so Wendy and Craig Hull from my band, they played the Billy Thermal demos for Linda without telling me. And the the first thing I heard was that she wanted to record a Billy Thermal song, How Do I Make It? Mm -hmm. And a lot of things that appear to be promising don't pan out. So you sort of have to be... Uh, you have to be careful about getting overly excited about things. So I imagined, well, maybe she did like that song and maybe she rehearsed it with her band or maybe she'll record it, but maybe it won't even get on her album or something. So I only allowed myself minor amounts of excitement about it until I read an article in the Los Times that was a review of the linda ronstadt concert it was a fundraising concert for jerry brown who was her boyfriend and running for governor so it said in the article that she played some new wave material the best of which was how do i make you by songwriter billy steinberg And when I read that, I thought, I guess maybe this is going to (laughs) happen. And then shortly thereafter, I heard it was going to be the first single. And I was uh, elated.
0: Yeah. And were you happy to not be a solo artist or a band at that point and, and just focus on songwriting?
1: No, I didn't really think that that was what it added up to. I was still looking forward to having my record come out on Planet. What you're suggesting actually did sort of come true because How Do I Make You was our best song. And if we would have had a success as Billy Thermal on Planet Records, maybe our first single would have been How Do I Make You. But that was taken by Linda. And of course, I'm glad it got taken because I think I'm more cut out to be a songwriter than an artist in the long run. I didn't really love traveling. I didn't love performing, nor am I that great of a singer. So really what I was best at was songwriting.
0: You certainly are extremely good at it. And you were coming from a place of, uh, I mean, you sing and you play, but when we worked together, You know, your instrument was your pen in hand. You were coming Mm -hmm. in with lyrics and Tom was sitting at the piano. At some point, did you just delegate to Tom to do music and you would edge him on with melody or like it could go up here, but you would let him take that?
1: Well, Billy Thermal broke up and it was the summer of 1981. Mm -hmm. And I was invited to a party at a guy's house who I had never met producer Keith Olson. And why did I get invited to his party? Because he had produced one of my songs for Pat Benatar. It was a song I wrote called I'm Going to Follow You, and it was on an album called Crimes of Passion. So I wanted to try to meet people in the music business, and I got Keith Olson's phone number from Chrysalis Records. That's the label that Pat Benatar was on. And Keith Olson, I said, well, hi, Keith, uh, this is Billy Steinberg. And he, he said, Billy, you're one of my favorite songwriters. And I was so flattered. And I said, well, I'd really love to meet you. And he said, well, I'm having a housewarming party at my new house. Would you like to come? So I said, I'd love to come. And I put my acoustic guitar in the trunk of my car. And I died to his new house. And I realized even though his house was full of artists and musicians, nobody had their guitars. I was sort of sheepish about that. But Tom Kelly was also at that party. So that's where I met Tom. And I suggested to him that we try to write a song together. And I don't really know why I said that, because I had always written my own songs. But I I kind of got infected with the love of success by the How Do I Make You hit with Linda Ronstadt. And I had this vague feeling that I'm probably not going to have that ability to keep writing hit songs by myself. So I had this idea of co-writing. And the first person I asked was Tom Kelly. And he agreed. He said, yeah, let's write. Now I'm coming around to answering your question. When we got together to write, I really didn't have a sense that I was better at lyrics or music. I just thought, well, I'm a songwriter and he's a songwriter and we'll somehow figure out how to write a song together. The whole co-write thing was new to me. Mm -hmm. But one of the first things Tom said to me was, geez, I dread writing lyrics. I hate writing lyrics. And I said, well, I've been writing poetry since I was in high school and I I like writing lyrics. And he said, oh, that's good. That's good. So then he starts playing the piano and playing the guitar. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, that guy knows a lot more chords than I do. I kind of was a, you know, basic guitarist. Tom was a much more accomplished musician than I was. And he also sang a lot better than I did. And it took us a while to find a stride, you know. In this day and age, so many people do so many co-writes with so many people. I don't know if Tom and I ever would have found our groove if it was today because it took us quite a while. I think the best material I wrote for Billy Thermal, Tom and I didn't write a song as good as that for six months. So from writing with Tom at the beginning, I didn't feel like my songs were getting better. I thought they were just different. But finally we got together. And even though it wasn't the first hit Tom and I wrote, we got together and we wrote the song Alone, the song that was a big hit for Heart and It wasn't our first hit, but it was the first one that we wrote together. Mm -hmm. And then I really felt like, okay, now we're going somewhere.
0: Yeah. You know, I can't believe I've only just noticed this, but there seem to be a lot of female artists who cover your songs. Do you think that there's something, because I remember hearing in publishing circles, you have a demo and you're pitching it to a woman singer, get a man to sing on the demo so they don't feel like they're competing with your demo singer and vice versa. What do you think is the reason that more female artists have covered your songs?
1: You know, I've been asked that question before, Louise, and I don't really know the answer. One of my most famous songs is Like a Virgin, and people always giggle when I say it was written from my point of view. I didn't see it as a song that was written for a female artist. I didn't think of it as a song for a male artist or a female artist. I just thought of it as a song, a very personal experience and it relates something that was happening in my life.
2: Mm -hmm. So
1: I don't know, but you're right. Other than Roy Orbison, I really haven't had any hits by male artists. They've been female artists, and there must be a reason for it. Maybe I tap into a a sensitivity that works from a female point of view. Sometimes I think it could be more musical. Maybe... The fact that I was writing songs with Tom Kelly, and he sings in a very high register and often sings in keys that are suitable for female artists. Maybe that's part of the reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Even How Do I Make You? And that was pre-Tom Kelly, it was sung by a woman.
0: Yeah, Roy Orbison's a good one to have if you're gonna have one.
1: (laughs) And Roy Orbison has that range in his voice where he could sing really high yeah when michael austin and said he was looking for a song for madonna from warner brothers records met with tom and me immediately said well let's play him like a virgin because we had just written it
0: it's interesting to me that you wrote it about a specific situation because Madonna made it so much her own that it almost looks like, oh, it was designed. It was custom made for her. So, yeah, what inspired the song? What was going on?
1: Well, I had been in a relationship that was very difficult very detrimental to me and very difficult to extricate myself from and when i did i met somebody new and i fell head over heels in love and i just found myself in a pickup truck in a vineyard in thermal california writing out some ideas and i wrote i made it through the wilderness somehow i made it through i didn't know how lost i was till i found you I was beat, incomplete, I'd been had, I was sad and blue, but you made me feel shiny and new, like a virgin. I always write just sort of stream of consciousness, and it was coming up with the word shiny and new that triggered like a virgin. And that's sort of what inspired that song. Uh,
0: I get chills just hearing you recite the lyric because it comes out of you like poetry. It comes out of you without the energy of marketing. You know, it's just simple. I'll
1: tell you something else which is interesting about it. Um, It does sound like, in many ways, it was custom written for Madonna but as soon as michael austin from warner brothers records mentioned it i thought oh my god like a virgin madonna it's like a match made in heaven and we had written that song and we had played the demo for a few a and r people and they all said you guys are crazy no one's gonna sing a song called like a virgin i think it was viewed as being very edgy and racy and probably inappropriate or something and maybe it was just edgy and Inappropriate enough for Madonna
2: mm-hmm.
1: at that time, but what I would like to say, and I thank you for responding to what you said about the uh, sincerity of the the words when I recited them to you. On the other side of the coin, there was a a nun in Italy, and she sang, and she won the Voice in Italy, the television show, The Voice. And she won it singing like a virgin. And she sang it like a ballad. And she did a beautiful video, a black and white video, and she's singing to God. And I was just so pleased that in a way, it was the exact opposite of Madonna. It was a nun singing it like a religious psalm or something. And I liked it that it showed the flip side of the song. It showed somewhat the sincerity with which those words were written. And I don't have anything to hold mark the way Madonna did it at all. Any songwriter's dream would be to have Madonna sing their first number one song It was a dream come true for Tom and me. Yeah. But it is nice to see the other side of the coin, that there's more to the song than meets the eye.
0: Yeah, there sure is. And all of your songs come out as from the heart. Nothing ever feels fake. Even though I know you're a craftsperson, I mean, you've been doing it so long and there is craft involved, but I always feel like the craft is second and the emotion is first with you. And you know, when you do craft really well, it's easy to fool people. You can't tell the difference anyway. And maybe the two coexist together, you know, the sincerity and the craft, they work together. And True Colors is that way too. I've heard people cover that song, and it doesn't matter who's singing it. There's something so innocent and pure about the sentiment on that. Did that come from a life experience as well? or?
1: Well, I would say True Colors is Tom and My Most Successful Song. It's the one that earns the most money. It's the one that's been covered the most. And it was also the hardest one to write. And I'll tell you why. I told you earlier that I always wrote in a stream of consciousness kind of way. Mm -hmm. And I told you the words for the first verse of Like a Virgin and how they led into the title. Mm -hmm. Shiny and new Like a Virgin. So the exact same thing happened with True Colors. The original first verse to that song went like this. You've got a long list. With so many choices, a ventriloquist with so many voices, and your friends in high places say where the pieces fit. You've got too many faces in your makeup kit, but I see your true colors shining through.
0: Bob Dylan would have been happy to write that, Billy. (laughs) Uh. i'm sure i'm sure he would have been
1: so tom and i got together and i put that lyric in front of him and it also had the entire chorus lyric i see your true colors shining through i see your true colors that's why i love you don't be afraid to let them show your true colors are beautiful like a rainbow and tom started playing on the piano and singing it in a very sort of gospel ballad way and came up with some beautiful chords and melodies. And you know, Tom, and you know this because you spent a little time with Tom and me writing a song. Tom, he didn't really pick lyrics apart. So much to my surprise, after we wrote our first version of True Colors, he said to me, we've got this great song here. And your first verse is really poetic, but it's about someone very specific, someone with friends in high places who say where the pieces fit. And yet, your chorus lyric is so universal. It could be from a parent to a child, a friend to a friend, a lover to a lover. Don't you think we'd be better served to have a verse that was as universal as the chorus? And there I was, having written songs for oh over 15 years, being asked to rewrite something for the first time really in my life. Because I always just went with whatever flowed out. And here I was having written what I thought was a really... Honest poetic first verse, and agreeing with Tom that it really wasn't serving the chorus as well as it should be. So I said, Okay, yeah, I'll give it a try. I'll try writing a new verse. And honestly, Louise, it took me a year, a year, because every time Tom and I would get together, and I was still living in the Coachella Valley, and he was living in Los Angeles, so we wouldn't get together every day, but every time we would get together. He'd play the intro for True Colors. And I'd go, no, no, because I had been avoiding it. I really didn't feel like I knew how to rewrite something. How could I rewrite something that had any authenticity or honesty if it wasn't just a stream of consciousness kind of effort? So I finally managed to rewrite it. And I never really felt that the first verse in the new version measured up to the original one in terms of the quality of writing but it did serve the chorus and it did turn into our biggest song
0: so what did you do with that verse you recited
1: it's on a piece of paper in a drawer
0: it's so good
1: i know but it
0: well maybe you can write it into something
1: well it fits with the melody of the verse to true colors you know it's part of that song.
0: yeah what a story and do you think i mean this is a tough call Do you think it would have been as successful or less successful or any different with the original? Oh,
1: absolutely. The fact that True Colors gets licensed for advertisements, gets put in movies for children like Trolls, sung by Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake, is because of the universality and the innocence of the lyrics. And my original lyric wasn't that. It really wasn't. It was a very personal, very... Intelligent and specific story, but it wouldn't have wouldn't have had the ability to apply to so many different singers in different situations, yeah, so I can fight would have been a successful no
0: yeah, and maybe the original one was a bit more heady, intellectual i I loved it, and yet it is such a great universal song, and that's a really interesting thing you bring up because. You know, when you try to be general, you bring people together less because everyone knows what it feels like to pick up a cup. Everyone knows the specificity of it brings people together. And that's me, you're talking about me. And yet in this particular case, maybe the lyrics weren't something everyone could relate to. It's a really fine line between what Tom was saying, make it more universal. Maybe there's a difference between universal and general. Because general can be bland, universal can be inclusive, and general could be like, let's leave out specific things.
1: That's what I feared. I feared that I had made the first verse bland by rewriting it, but... It,
0: it did work well. There's so many songs, and I know Chrissy Hind speaks so highly of you, and and that's another amazing song. "I'll Stand By You" is an amazing song. That's just a really great song, and and unexpected for her, and yet she sings it so well. Where did that one come from?
1: Well, you know, just having the opportunity to write a song with Chrissy Hind was huge. You know, as a songwriter. You're aware of the artists in the world who are willing to cover songs, to cut songs by outside writers. And then there's a whole different group of artists who write their own songs, and you wouldn't really dream of writing a song for them. Back at that time, there was a guy by the name of Jason Dowman who was a song plugger. And he asked me, he said, if I arrange for you a collaboration. Could I get a commission on the collaboration? And I said, absolutely, Jason, because, you know, we're always um, hustling, you know, songwriters, we have to hustle. And he said, well, who would you like to write a song with? And almost just sarcastically, I said, Bob Dylan, Prince, or Chrissy Hind. And uh, I said, it just kind of get rid of him. But he said, okay, okay. And then he called me a few weeks later and said, you're going to be getting a call from Chrissy Hind. And I thought, oh yeah, okay. So I did, I got a call from Chrissy Hind. And, you know, she can be kind of intimidating. She's very articulate and no nonsense. But she said, yeah, I want to write a hit. I want to write a hit. She hadn't had a hit in a while. She wanted to write a hit. So um, Tom and I, you know, we loved The Pretenders, Back on the Chain Gang and Don't Get Me Wrong and the earlier stuff like The Weight and Brass in Pocket and Message of Love, all that stuff. So we held her in very high regard and we got together with Chrissy and we wrote a song that originally we called it Just the Night in My Veins. Mm. And then she abbreviated it and called it Night in My Veins. And so we wrote five or six songs for that album and... The first song, the first single was Night In My Veins. And it was a medium-sized hit. And we had written this other song, I'll Stand By You. And like you said, when you started this conversation about Chrissy Hind, it really wasn't a typical Pretenders song. And I think that Tom and I felt that we, in Night In My Veins, we felt like, okay, we've really written a Pretenders song. This is a Pretenders song. But with I'll Stand By You we felt we'd written a great song. We weren't sure it was a pretender song. And I think Chrissy felt the same way because when it came time for her to sequence her album, she kind of buried I'll Stand By You. I think it might be, you know, in those days, sequencing was an important thing because whether it was a CD or a vinyl record, it was first cut on the first side and all these things meant a lot. And she kind of buried I'll Stand By You somewhere in the the middle of the second side of the album or something. But I was glad that she didn't just leave it off the album because it did not sound like a Pretender song. But her guitar player played some great stuff in it and Bob Clear Mountain mixed it and, you know, made it sound like a Pretender song. And, and it was nice because... Chrissy invited Tom to play the piano on the record, which was great. But that song, you know, the thing about True Colors and I'll Stand By You, they fit into a category of song. It's a short list. Uh, Your Dear Mother wrote one that's on that list. You've Got a Friend and Bridge Over Troubled Waters is on that list. Lean On Me by Bill Withers or Let It Be. These are songs that are sort of inspirational Mm -hmm. that are soothing to people and encouraging songs. And they're not romantic songs. They're not sex songs. So with I'll Stand By You, when I wrote the title, I was very conscious that I had inverted Stand By Me. I'll Stand By You definitely has a relationship to Stand By Me. I'll Stand By You. So I didn't feel that it had as much originality as a title or as a lyric as say, Like a Virgin or True Colors or something. But, you know, looking back and Tom and Chrissy and I wrote maybe a dozen songs together. It's the best one we wrote together.
0: When you say that it was taking Stand By Me and I'll Stand By You, it's almost like an answer song. People would write replies to, that's interesting. Well, it did do incredibly well in spite of being buried on the record. And uh, it really holds up outside of even Chrissy's rendition of it, which is amazing.
1: Well, the song endures, you know. Yeah. Night In My Veins was the first single off that record, but nobody knows that song. Night In My Veins was the first single off that album, but it sort of went away. Mm. But I'll Stand By You endures. There's a a mysterious thing that happens in the world of songs. You can write a hit song that maybe it gets radio play and generates some income over a short period of time. Then you have another song that gets radio play, but it just keeps going. It just finds its way into the consciousness of the public. And I'll Stand By You is one of those songs. It just kind of stuck around.
0: It's a grower.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. So, speaking of the list that you just said, which was non sexualized songs, songs that, you know, have to do with soothing and more about friendship and comfort, the song I Touch Myself, was that written to be overtly sexual?
1: <laughs> well, that's another song that, to be honest with you, again, it was a piece, it started out as a piece of writing by me. And I wrote in a notebook. I love myself, I want you to love me. When I feel down, I want you above me. I search myself, I want you to find me. I forget myself, I want you to remind me. I don't want anybody else. When I think about you, I touch myself. So I wasn't really thinking, oh, I wanna write a masturbation song. It just flowed out of that verse and so, that's just where it came from.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And was it pre-written before she covered it?
1: Was the song pre-written? Yeah. Well, no, because Tom and I were asked to write a song with Nose and hmm And that was Chrissy Amphlett and Mark McEntee, Australians. And Mark was the guitarist in the band. He was sort of the Keith Richards of that band. And Chrissy Amphlett was the Mick Jagger of the band. I know were a fantastic band. and
0: They were fantastic. And may she rest in peace. She was so full of life and uh, amazing performer.
1: So Tom and I wanted to write with the Divinals. And when we were given the opportunity, I suggested to Chrissy because she was in Los Angeles. And I knew that it was going to be kind of chaotic to get together. The four of us, Mark and Chrissy and Tom and me, and just start something from scratch. I suggested to Chrissy, this is another Chrissy now, of course, we're talking about.
0: Chrissy
1: Amphlet. Yeah. I suggested to her, let's get together and I'll go over with you some ideas that I have. Because Tom and I, different from many songwriters, always started with the lyrics. So I had a notebook and I had a lot of lyrics in there. And I knew the one that I liked best, but I didn't want to tell her which one it was. So I showed her about a half a dozen possibilities. And she said, I like this one. It was I touch myself. And I thought, good, because that's the one I like best too. But we had a head start because she selected that. And I knew that the next day when we went to Tom's house and there would be four of us, that we would have something to focus our efforts on. I wasn't going to be in an embarrassing situation of showing lyrics to Tom and Chrissy and Mark, trying to sort through them. And Chrissy and I had already decided that was what we were going to try to write.
0: That was a good move. Yeah. What is the most amount of co-writers you've had on a single song?
1: I think that would be it, four. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Interesting, because now you know now there's sometimes six writers listed on songs. I guess it moves down an assembly line with different people doing different things these days.
1: Well, now I think if you play the tambourine or change the kick drum or something, you get songwriting credit.
0: Ah, I better work on my tambourine skills then.
1: <laughs> I bet you have
2: them. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Billy, you mentioned at some point when we were talking on the phone earlier in the year that you were putting some book together or you were putting some project together. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, well, I went through all my songs that I've written in my life from the songs I wrote as an 18-year-old when I was a freshman at Bard College all the way up to now. And I went through them and I picked out all my favorite ones, regardless of some that have never been released on records and some have been hits. and, And so I decided to write a little piece about all the ones that I decided were my favorites. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be 113 songs. So I wrote 113 little pieces about the songs. And then I scavenged around and I found photographs that related to all those different periods. Playing in a dormitory at Bard College or performing with Billy Thermal or working with Tom. So I've put it all together into a book that will also have a download card. But at one point in time, I had to decide, is this something I'm going to try to market? Or is this something that I'm doing for posterity? And I decided against the whole marketing thing. I don't really want to be a salesman. If somebody sees it, it's going to be sort of a box set kind of uh, presentation, If somebody sees it and thinks it was marketable, I wouldn't object, but my goal really is just manufacturing enough to give away to people that I care about. And I think it'll be a nice keepsake for family and friends and people in the industry who I've worked closely with. But I'm not really trying to sell it. Maybe somebody will want to try to sell it. I don't know.
0: Well, if somebody wanted it, would they be able to go to a website and buy one? Or are you not making it available for people? Well, I don't know.
1: That's up in the air. At the moment, it's being manufactured. I'm supposed to get it in mid-December.
0: Good timing for Christmas.
1: Yeah. So I don't know if somebody was desperate to have one and I had enough, I guess I'd sell one or something. I don't know. I really haven't thought about that. I just know that it just sounds kind of unpleasant to me to try to be selling this thing full of pictures of myself or something. It's It's a little bit
0: like vinyl. You have all these boxes sitting somewhere in your house. And you know, once in a while, someone goes on the website and says, I want to sign vinyl. And you go to the post office and send it off.
1: There's going to be one vinyl album in it, too. Oh, one thing I forgot to say about it is it's all demos. None of the songs are the hit versions. It's all the demos. Mm -hmm. And there's a vinyl record in it that'll have 12 of the biggest songs. So if you had this, you'd be able to hear Tom Kelly singing the demo of Like a Virgin or True Colors. Or you'd hear Billy Thermal doing How Do I Make You and so on. Chrissy Hines singing the demo of I'll Stand By You. I don't know. It'll be a nice thing to have for people who care.
0: I think a lot of people care. And also because everything is streamed and digital. I think things that you can touch and hold have a newfound value. It's like a piece of art.
1: Those things that you're talking about have value for young people, or they just have value to us who miss the tactile quality of a vinyl record or a book? Would kids care about something like that?
0: Well, you and I both have kids. Your kid is maybe a little more adult than my kids, but... That's an interesting question. I know my kids like three dimensional things. If it will make a sound, (laughs) they could plug something in like a microphone or an amp or a guitar or something. But when it comes to content, they go through it really quickly. They like to go to it, be able to hear it right away and, and then move on to the next thing and not take up space and Yeah. But to see your handwriting, like, is it your handwriting or is it printed, the lyrics? Are they scanned or?
1: Well, there are some handwritten lyrics in it.
0: Yeah. It's hard to say. Maybe people listening to this can, in comments, you know, write their two cents. If you get enough of a demand, who knows? But it's wonderful that you're doing it. Well,
1: I'm going to give you a copy.
0: Oh, yay. Thank you so much. I will treasure it. Beautiful.
1: I have a big collection of vinyl records and I listen to one at least every day. I'll listen to an LP, I'll listen to 45s. So I'm sort of so old fashioned. I don't even ever stream music myself, but I know that songwriters are underpaid for streaming. And I'm told that there's a lot of people working to change that and slowly some progress is being made. On various occasions, I've tried to help a little bit, but I'm not really that much of a political creature, so I don't work on it all the time. I don't think you can fight the future. I mean, streaming is obviously where music is right now and where it's headed, at least far as we can see kids stream music.
0: Well, It's harder because you made your way and your career during a time when things are different. You know, upcoming songwriters they maybe don't even have the expectation of being able to make that kind of money that you could make in the 80s today
2: maybe
1: somebody will make more because look there's all these companies like hypnosis that are all buying catalogs and the publishers share they're even buying the writers share somebody thinks that there's a lot of value in songs they must think that streaming's gonna pay off
0: right it's encouraging we are part of a community of songwriters And, you know, it's highly competitive. For years, you're competing for cuts with your friends. That's been going on for decades, right? What is that like when you are good friends with somebody and you know you're both trying to get the same cut on somebody's record? How do you manage that? You just do what you got to do and say I love you and...
1: (laughs) Well, back in the day, as they say, yeah, you'd just write the best song you could and the best song would perhaps win. You know, I'm sure that going back to the days of your parents, Jerry and Carol and...
0: Barry and S- Cynthia. Barry
1: and Cynthia and the great Burt Burns and all the great writers of the time, Mort Schumann and Doc Pomus and Hal and Burt, you know, they'd all mm-hmm. be trying to write the next hit for the Drifters. Yeah. And... Uh, Somebody would get it. You know, that's my era. I love those songs, and that's what inspired me to write songs. Of course, I was also inspired by, of course, all the artists who I loved who wrote their own songs, guys like Roy Orbison or The Beatles, you know, not songwriters writing to get cuts. But you know, I remember as a kid I went to the Palm Springs Youth Center mm-hmm. when I was just going through puberty and I had my first slow dance. And it was Walk On By, Dionne Warwick, a Bert Bacharach I
0: love that song so much.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, songs were always such a huge part of my life, you know. I remember having my collection of 45s and my friends would come over and I'd play them and I'd study my friends' faces. And it used to be very disappointing to me that they didn't care about these songs like I did you know when the needle went down on the record and it was there goes my baby by the drifters and with all those swirling strings and that great vocal i would just be transported it was almost too much to take And my friends would be, didn't mean that much to them, you know. But that's what songs mean to me. I just love them. And that's why I became a songwriter, I guess.
0: So how is COVID times, how is it impacting your work world? And are you songwriting?
1: Well, just in general, COVID aside, I'm not as prolific a writer as I used to be. And I'm not as motivated to compete in the current climate of Nine writers on a song, and I wouldn't even know where to go to try to get a cut.
0: You should play the tambourine. (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, you know, my son's 24 years old, and he's trying to carve out a career as a singer and a songwriter and get his start. So I'm more interested in a way from my desire to see him able to succeed and to get a foothold than I am about me being able to continue to succeed as a writer. I, I wrote a song. Two weeks ago. That was a lot of fun. It was really a lot of fun. It was kind of exhausting, really, in a way.
2: (laughs) You
0: were working with LP, that artist LP, weren't you, at one point? Yeah,
1: I've done a lot of writing with LP, and she's a delightful individual, just fun to be around. She's like a female Roy Orbison in a way. When I first met her, I was so inspired by her voice that I put together a band to do a version of the Roy Orbison song, It's Over, and with LP singing. And Tony Berg and I co-produced it. And Tony had never met LP before that session. I just said, Tony, will you help me co-produce this song? And he said he'd love to do it. And, you know, it's over. And when you think of a Roy Orbison song, there's very few people that are going to be able to walk in the studio and sing it. Because that song in particular is erratic. So I remember Tony, he, he brought in all these great musicians. I know Patrick Warren on keyboards, and I can't remember who else. So LP's out in the vocal booth, and we've got this arrangement for It's Over. And I just remember when she stepped up to the mic and started singing it, Tony looked at me like, "Whoa, <laughs> she could really sing it." You know, you can find it. I think if you go to YouTube, it's over LP. You'll hear the version that we cut.
0: Mm, what does LP stand for?
1: Her her name is Laura Pergolizzi, but she goes by LP.
0: Sometimes I go by LG. <laughs> I never
1: heard anyone call you LG.
0: Oh, I have a, a friend who always answers the phone, LG. And then sometimes I spell it E-L-L-E and then G-E-E.
1: Well, you see with me, it wouldn't work because it would be BS, <laughs> Billy Steinberg, but BS. I mean, my real name's William, so I could be W-S, but Billy Steinberg, BS, It's a, that's not a good one.
0: No, it's not. <laughs> so do you have any, well, before I ask you, I was going to ask you a question, but I'm going to hold off one second because I want to talk to you about your tomatoes. Right. <laughs> you've posted some really nice looking tomatoes that you've grown. And so I wanted to ask you what it was like working for your dad and, you know, knowing so much about earth sciences and how it's so opposite to being in the music business, you know, but in some ways I wonder if it helped, you know, I'm thinking Chauncey Gardner, you know, and being there. <laughs> Did it help you?
2: Well,
1: I've been accused of being a little like Chauncey Gardner.
0: Have you? Yeah, I have
1: been. For better or for worse, those of you who know the movie Being There with Peter Sellers would know that Chauncey Gardner was kind of a bumbling, poetic moron or something. <laughs> but, and I've been accused of being a little like that. But yeah, I worked 15 years in agriculture with my father. And so I get the love for pruning the vines and planting a new vineyard and all everything that went into it. And during the spring and summer, I have 45 tomato plants in my backyard. And I buy the plants and I plant them and fertilize them and train them and I don't know it, it it taps into that original feeling of working with vines mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and do you feel when you're doing work or in your life when you're doing work that there's some kind of parallels of just things need tilling and then they have their time and their harvest and then you, you start over does it help see the big picture in some ways just by having a love of earth sciences
1: I don't know I'm a very restless person you know and I need things to do so I like having Things to do. I've got to go water the tomatoes. I've got to go tie the tomatoes. I I like having things to do.
0: I didn't know that about you.
1: Yeah, I'm very restless. You know, I can't do nothing. I always have a book I'm reading, and when I finish it, I start another one. I've always have to have a lot of things to do. Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: I learned something new. I learned a lot of new things. Yeah, I
1: I used to commute a lot between. Palm Springs in LA. And I just think, I don't know the song I drove all night. That's one of the songs I wrote with Tom Kelly that I think is one of our best. And it's unusual because it was recorded by uh, three major artists. It was done by Roy Orbison, Celine Dion, but Cyndi Lauper made it a top 10 hit. So that's one of my favorites. I don't know the first line of the song. It says, I had to escape. The city was sticky and cruel. I drove all night. But when Tom and I wrote the song, there's a song that Roy Orbison wrote called Running Scared.
2: Mm -hmm. And our
1: song, I Drove All Night, it's really an homage to Roy Orbison. And then to actually have him sing it was incredible. To be in a room with him singing a song that we wrote as an homage to him. It was really the only childhood hero that I ever worked with. So that was amazing. Although I did once work with this songwriter called Jerry Goffin, <laughs> who was also a childhood hero, but not an artist, but a songwriting hero.
0: How did that work? Tom had to have been there, right? Cause you and my dad would have been writing lyrics mostly.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, your, your dad came in with a lyric that he had written. And so, I don't know, maybe it needed some additions that I added on to it. But I know that emotionally it was Tom writing some chords and melodies to something your dad had written and I helped out. I don't know. It wasn't a song that anything happened with, but it was just fun getting to know him. That's the main thing I remember is I got to know Jerry.
0: That was his favorite thing, is having people come over and write a song. So Roy Orbison records the song that you wrote as an homage to him. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so tell me about some of the other experiences of having your songs covered. I know you did something with Demi Lovato, you know, more recently.
1: Yeah, the last big hit that I wrote was written with Josh Alexander. Mm -hmm. And it's a song called Give Your Heart a Break. And Demi Lovato recorded it. That was very exciting. And Josh and I also wrote one for JoJo. Mm-hmm. And that was called Too Little, Too Late. And that was exciting. You know, it's nice to have hit songs in different decades, <laughs> you know. One of my personal favorite songs that I've written is a song that I wrote with Rick Knowles and Marie Claire DuBaldo, which is a, a really beautiful song.
0: Falling Into You.
1: Yeah. And it was never released as a single in the U.S., but it's a personal favorite of mine. It was a hit in Europe.
0: Just beautiful. Okay, so can we talk about another song of yours? A huge hit, iconic, Eternal Flame.
1: Eternal Flame for the Bengals. Yeah, that's a, a really beautiful song. Tom and I wrote that with Susanna Hoffs.
0: So she was on the scene when you two were writing that she was very much a part of that. And did you show lyrics to Susanna and say, here are some ideas I have?
1: No eternal flame. It came about in a different way. I got together with Susanna. Mm -hmm. Like I was explaining with Chrissy Amphlett. I wanted to get together with Susanna and come up with some lyrics before we got together with Tom, Mm -hmm. but She walked in to my house and you know, when songwriters are going to do some work together, usually there's some chit-chat that happens beforehand. And Susanna said that she had just been with the Bangles in Memphis, Tennessee. And that while they were there, they went to Graceland. And she said, we saw an eternal flame for Elvis. And I said, whoa, that's a great title for a song. And it triggered in my mind this image I had as a child of walking through the synagogue in Palm Springs with my Sunday school class. And there's this little red light. And they said, that's the eternal flame. It never goes out. And I, to me, it was like thinking about a star in the sky mm. or the sun or just something, you know, bewilderingly, Unfathomable, sort of like so. When Susanna mentioned the eternal flame, and I had this thing, and then I just took out a notebook and I wrote, Close Your Eyes, Give Me Your Hand, just the lyrics for it. And we got together with Tom and the Bengals, you know, even when they were at their height of their popularity, they were always retro, even mm-hmm. though it was the 80s, they were retro to the 60s. Yes, yeah. the Beatles and Tom. And Susanna and I all had a love for, I guess everyone does, a love for Beatles songs. And in this case, I would think Eternal Flame was inspired by songs like Here, There and Everywhere or For No One from the Revolver record. And Tom wrote some incredible chords and melodies for that song. And it's, you know, it's one of our our biggest songs, Eternal Flame.
0: It's a great one.
1: That's one they really love in Europe, you know? I remember Max Martin, the songwriter, once said that it was one of his favorite songs. And I felt like, oh wow, I was really flattered because he's so successful and everything to know that he rated that song so highly.
0: he has got good taste.
1: Well, it's a song that doesn't have really a contemporary structure. It really has a 60s structure because it doesn't have a chorus.
0: And it's got the high note.
1: The verse just ends, am I only dreaming or is this burning an eternal flame? And you could say that the verse is a chorus, but it's not really, there really isn't a chorus. It's verse, verse and a bridge. Close your eyes, give me your hand. Do you feel my heart beating? Do you understand? Do you feel the same? Am I only dreaming? Or is this burning an eternal flame? It's a lot of questions, you know, it's just question after question. And uh, it doesn't really have a chorus. But the melody that Tom wrote is so beautiful that by the end of the song, when all the bangles come in and sing the first verse again, the first verse sounds like a chorus. Mm -hmm. But structurally, really, the song doesn't have a chorus. And it has a bridge that appears twice in the song. And that's sort of like a Beatle-esque kind of move. You know, like if you think of Hard Day's Night or We Can Work It Out, those songs had great bridges or what the British would call middle eights. And -hmm. they happen twice in the song because there's not really a chorus to either of those songs. So we followed that uh, structure sort of.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: What
1: about the song So Emotional? Well, So Emotional was the one song. You know, people always say, well, did you custom write songs for Madonna or Cyndi Lauper? And I always say, no, 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 no. We just wrote songs. We just wrote songs to try to have fun. And then we would hope that someone would want to sing them. But with So Emotional, little different story, because Clive Davis called Tom and me and said, I need an up-tempo song for Whitney. And we just sort of on this rare occasion were able to rise to the challenge and we wrote so emotional and uh it's not something that we excelled at we really didn't like that you know some songwriters get in a room i'm sure you've had this experience louise who do you want to write for that's the first question who do you want to write for as if that helps focus but tom and i were the opposite it was like. Who do we want to write for? We want to write for ourselves. We won't write to have fun, to make ourselves happy, and then see what happens with the song later. But in this case, lo and behold, we wrote a song for Whitney Houston because Clive asked us to, and we got lucky.
2: Yeah,
0: that question sometimes happens. Are we writing for someone or are we writing a song for song's sake?
1: I like to write them for song's sake. I don't want to try to custom write a song for any artist. It makes me feel inhibited.
0: Yeah. And you're guessing, you know, you may write something different than you think they're looking for, you know. You may write something that is based on who they were in their last record and now they suddenly want to discover a new part of themselves. And your song that you wrote for song's sake might be that for them.
1: Exactly. You just expressed it perfect.
0: Yeah i love that you did it that way yeah and it helps that you had a bunch of hits to get clive davis to call you i mean i waited eight months for clive to listen to a song and then i got a letter a reject letter and he sent many of them
1: i got letters from clive
0: you do you have them too.
1: the nice thing about clive i'll tell you an interesting story and um it came out of an experience Maybe I shouldn't mention names here because it might be considered critical of a particular individual. But a few years back, I wrote a song with my partner, Josh Alexander, and another guy. The three of us wrote a song and we wrote it for a very famous, well, we didn't write it for her, but it got cut by this very well-known artist who's popular today. This was just a few years ago. And her A&R person loved the song and played it for people whenever they came in and said, this is where we're headed with this record. And, you know, it was really exciting for us to know how much they liked this song. The song had the word heart in the title, but then the artist decided arbitrarily that she didn't want to have a song with the word heart in the title. And she told her A&R person she wanted to drop the song because she didn't want a song with the word heart in the title. And of course I was devastated. We were convinced our song was the first single, but the reason I'm telling you this now is because we were talking about Clive Davis. And I'm thinking if Clive Davis picked So Emotional for Whitney Houston and she recorded it, if she said, well, I don't really want to have a song with the word emotional in the title, would he have let her discard the song? No way. That's what was great about Clive Davis. Whether he was rejecting your song or not, he really believed in what he heard and he cared about it. He'd have three producers cut the song until they got it right. And today, like this experience I had with this other song, it was so disappointing that this guy loved the song, played it for people as what he thought was the prototype for this artist, and then was willing to just throw it away because the artist didn't want a song with that word in the title. I don't know. I just thought the Clive Davises of the world who really believe in what they're doing are few.
0: Yes. Yeah. Having been signed to majors, I know what it felt like when I had really good A&R you know just having someone have insight on something and say what if you would consider it? and so often i would be primed and ready for a bad idea am i about to get to water down what i do i was already raring to look at it that way and then i'd be surprised and say that's a great idea that's great input that's what anr is supposed to be yeah artist in repertoire
1: that's right Yeah. It's been great chatting with you and thank you for inviting me to be a part of your journey.
0: Thank you. I'm actually going to go to a sound check now, believe it or not. I don't play very many gigs these days, but I'm sitting in on a Graham Parsons 75 birthday tribute. Will you keep busy? Because I know you like to. Yeah.
1: I'll be excited to hear the podcast of our conversation. Thank you again for inviting me, Louise.
0: Billy, love to you. See you soon.
1: Okay, bye, Louise.
2: Bye.
0: Thank you, Billy, for all your insight and for sharing what makes songs that stand the test of time. Join us next time for a conversation with Thomas Walsh an Ivor Novello nominated songwriter who's the front person and songwriter behind the Irish pop rock group Pugwash. Pugwash has released six albums since its debut in 1999. Influences on the band's sound are regularly cited as including XTC, Electro Light Orchestra, Jeff Lynn, The Beach Boys, The Kinks, and Honeybus. on song chronicles you'll hear the behind the scenes stories told by music makers and music industry insiders themselves if you're enjoying the podcast please leave a review on apple youtube spotify podbean or wherever you
2: stream